MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Muller She Wrote Book Club, MSW Book Club series on Ellie Honig's new book, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Most of you know me as AG. You can follow me three places on Twitter, at Allison Gill, two L's and Allison, two L's and Gill, at Muller She Wrote, and you can follow our weekday morning news podcast at Daily Beans Pod. Please subscribe to that show and this one. And you can check out all of our shows at mswmedia.com. So let me go over the breakdown of this book with you, the way I'm going to do this series. Today, I'll be covering pages 1 through 36. That's three chapters. The first chapter is Earn Your Stripes. The second is called Confirmation. And finally, uh, Impartiality. For episode two, I'll be covering pages 37 to 77, so you can read ahead for that if you haven't already finished the book. I finished it in like a day. It was so good. Uh, week three is pages 78 through 125. Week four will include pages 126 through 160. Week five is pages 161 to 194. And week six will be 195 to the end of the book. And then finally, in week seven, I'll be joined by Ellie Honig, the author, to go over the book in its entirety and answer patrons' questions. If you're not a patron and you want to ask questions, you can become one for as little as three bucks a month. And when you sign up, you also automatically become a patron of The Daily Beans and Muller She Wrote for no extra cost. That will get you ad-free episodes, early releases, access to bonus content, and private social media groups for discussion, as well as first dibs on things like VIP meet-and-greet tickets when we go back out on the road, and access to our live Zoom happy hour call. That's a Zoom call every week at Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern. And that's when you can ask me questions directly, and we just chat and tell jokes and share beverages. All that for three bucks a month. And your money helps us uh, keep, you know, keep us afloat. We pay our team handsomely because of you, and it gives us the ability to offer our employees health care. So thanks to all of our patrons for your support. Just head to MullerSheWrote.com for more information on that. All right. Now, with all that out of the way, let's start with Chapter 1, Earn Your Stripes. First, I want to start off again by saying this book is incredibly well-written, very thoughtfully organized. It's succinct. It's funny at times. Uh, it's endearing. There's a lot of great anecdotes in here that lead into discussions about how Bill Barr corrupted the Justice Department. The first chapter opens with one of those anecdotes from Ellie about his first trial as a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. It's a thoughtful story about how Ellie prepped for the trial and began to learn the unwritten rules in what has become known as the Sovereign District of New York because of their penchant for independence in following the rule of law and the prosecutor's code. Uh, he talks about walking into the courthouse war room on the first morning of the trial and having his supervisor ask, 
what the hell are you wearing? (laughs) Referring to his slip-on shoes. Uh, He said to Ellie, no laces, not in front of a jury. Find different ones for tomorrow. (laughs) Um, His supervisor's name, by the way, was Sullivan, who is now a federal appellate judge. Not Emmett Sullivan, not the one we know from Flynn's trial, but another Sullivan. Rich Sullivan is his name. The trial should have taken a couple weeks. And per Ellie was by no means the trial of the century or even the trial of the week for the Southern District of New York. But it ended up taking a lot longer for a few reasons. First, the defense attorney had fallen into a manhole walking her dog and finished the trial using a cane and wearing dark wraparound sunglasses. Talk about, uh, you know, jury sympathy. And one of the prosecution's key witnesses disappeared for a week. (laughs) But eventually, the trial did end and they were sitting in the courtroom waiting for the verdict to be read. Sullivan was there, and Sullivan told Ellie, no matter what the verdict is, do not react. Um, they, they were prosecuting two counts in this case. The first was conspiracy to commit a robbery. The second was illegal possession of a firearm by a felon. The defendant's name was Robert Ortiz. New York Police Department had caught him with a loaded gun and a fake police badge hanging around his neck, and his plan was to use the gun and the badge to impersonate a cop to rob a coke dealer. Uh, The jury found him not guilty on the conspiracy count and found him guilty on the possession of a firearm charge. Ellie looked at Sullivan and said, so is that a win or a loss? And Sullivan responded, this isn't the NFL. We don't do wins and losses. The jury gave its verdict and we respect it. That's our justice system at work. Now, for me, this is an important story for a lot of reasons. First, for understanding the outcomes of a lot of the trials we've been following aren't just black and white. Of course, we all want criminals who have crimed to be found guilty of said crimes they commit. But the justice system is the justice system, and there's always nuance, much like when the Justice Department makes a split decision, like in the case of the Bill Barr March 2019 memo. We all wanted them to release the entire memo. Uh, I agreed with Judge Amy Berman Jackson's uh, uh, assessment of the law. You know, we didn't get quite the outcome we wanted. They released the first half of the memo and made an argument for deliberative process privilege to appeal the release of the second half. They will have to argue that case, and the court will make a determination. We can disagree with legal arguments made by either side, but they reserve the right to make them, just as the court reserves the right to determine, under law, whether to grant or deny those motions. Uh, I think as a society, we've gotten so caught up in wins and losses, we tend to overlook the justice process and make more histrionic calls on the good of the entire department based on split decisions. I personally think the Department of Justice argument in the Bill Barr memo appeal will not stand up to legal scrutiny, at least I hope it won't, but I'll wait for those arguments and the decision before I call the entire department a failure. Not everything is black and white, like I said. Not everything is a win or a loss. And if we disagree, we can push our elected officials to make reforms. And that does take time, but that's how it works. Of course, that doesn't account for actual miscarriages of justice and that the argument that there are two systems of justice, one for rich people, one for poor people, one for white people, one for people of color, etc. A dichotomy, by the way, that must be addressed. Uh, And there is a court reform commission happening right now, and I hope that they're doing that. The point Ellie was making here, though, with this is uh, that the outcome was one of 20 cases he would try in the Second Circuit, and one of hundreds or maybe thousands of cases he'd try as a federal prosecutor, not to mention his tenure supervising dozens of other prosecutors in the Southern District, then as director of the New Jersey Division of the Criminal Justice, where he oversaw 500-plus prosecutors and other staff that would work on thousands of cases each per year. All of that gave him the experience that he learned from not just other prosecutors, but judges, 
defense lawyers, cops, victim services experts, and even some defendants. All the while, Bill Barr never tried a single case as a prosecutor. And that's an important point, considering Barr missed out on all that knowledge and experience as a prosecutor, yet he led the prosecutors. He was in charge of all of them. I mean, imagine leading a team doing work that you're entirely unfamiliar with. And it's not just the work, it's the depth and knowledge of understanding that you would lack. And that would tee you up for a total disregard for the work that's being done on your watch, and and an inability to defend your team against institutional attacks. And the fact that Barr is a piece of shit, um, you know, just adds to a recipe for failure. In fact, Ellie identifies three fundamental traits that, quote, infected Barr's approach to his position as the nation's top prosecutor. The first is that Barr is a liar. Straight up, no holds barred, so to speak. He's a liar. Secondly, Barr is a partisan. Quote, he willingly affirmatively and aggressively use the Justice Department as a political tool to help Trump, end quote. And third, Barr used his position to impose his own philosophy about what a civil society ought to be. Ellie earned his chops in the well of the courtroom, and while he doesn't claim to know more than Bill Barr, he was brought up in the best traditions of the Justice Department, whose goals, quote, could never come at the expense of our integrity, credibility, and independence. Without those core values, he says, as a prosecutor, you're lost. So that is why it was so important for Ellie to make that point, that of the many, many, many trials that he participated in and oversaw, that the top prosecutor in the country had never once tried a case. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come right back with Chapter 2 called Confirmation. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. In this episode of the MSW Book Club, Hatchet Man is brought to you by Helix Sleep the absolute best mattress I've ever owned, and you know I've tried all the top brands. You've heard me over the years sing the praises of my Helix mattress. It is like sleeping on a cloud. I've never slept better. Uh, And it's not just because the Orange Menace is out of the White House or the Hatchet Man is out of the Department of Justice. Uh, At first, I thought I was losing sleep because of that. But as it turned out, my mattress was made for someone else. No one wants to sleep on a mattress made for someone else. So Helix Sleep to the rescue. Helix knows you're unique, and we all have different ways of sleeping. So Helix created an online sleep quiz designed to match you with the perfect mattress. Uh, I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I'm a side sleeper and I like a medium firm mattress and I I have never slept better. But you don't have to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. And Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as an actual solution for improving your sleep. They have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. And they'll come and pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Just go to helixsleep.com slash book club. Take their simple two-minute sleep quiz, and Helix will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows in case you're sleeping on trees and pillows from the pillow guy. So you get up to $200 off your mattress order and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash book club. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash book club for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. You'll be glad you did. Hey, everybody, welcome back. We are now on chapter two called Impartiality, which begins on page 12. And this chapter discusses Bill Barr's confirmation hearing, his audition memo of 2018, which we all remember, and what was going on before Barr got there. Let's start with the lead up to his nomination and confirmation. Here, Honig talks about Trump's announcement of Barr's nomination in December of 2018 and how a lot of folks, including me and including Ellie, said a lot of things we would eventually come to regret given how Barr turned out. 
Now, I didn't necessarily praise Barr or said he'd be fucking awesome. It was more like, well, it could have been worse. And I was taking my cues from pundits and experts and pros like Chuck Rosenberg and others who viewed Barr as an old-school institutionalist that might hopefully bring some reason and maybe some temperance to the insanity of the Trump administration. Of course, I had very good friends screaming in my ear, like the ladies over at Gaslit Nation, who correctly asked me if I was out of my mind. (laughs) But as the eternal optimist, I had meager hope he'd be better than Sessions, and God forbid, better than Matthew fucking Whitaker. Uh, Harry Littman endorsed Barr. The LA Times said he was a good pick. Ben Wittes wrote, as good an attorney general as we're likely to get. And like I said, Elliot Honig said, what you want is somebody who's qualified, who's serious, and who's respected. And by all accounts, William Barr is all of those things. And then, Ellie says, I ended up writing this book. (laughs) Uh, Ellie then takes some time going over Barr's previous tenure as AG, back under Bush, and reminds us that when his name came up as the one being nominated, we all couldn't help but compare him to Sessions and Whitaker, who were garbage. He then the bar was really low, so to speak. Uh, He then talks about Sessions and how he would oversee the enforcement of the disgraceful and draconian zero-tolerance policy on immigration. And Ellie brings up an excellent point here. Quote, Sessions and Rosenstein's child separation policy illustrates the danger posed by prosecutors who believe they must robotically apply criminal law without any regard for basic considerations of fairness, equity, or mercy. Unquote. And I could not agree more with this. In fact, I think this was an opportunity for Trump and folks like Stephen Miller to weaponize the letter of the law in such a way that it almost perverted it in favor of cruelty. We've often said the cruelty was the point. Honig goes on to point out probably the only good thing Sessions ever did, which was recuse himself from oversight of the Mueller investigation. Of course, that pissed Trump off, who repeatedly attacked him and by proxy the Justice Department for not being his Roy Cohn. And as we all know, the attorney general is not the personal attorney of the president. Ellie talks a bit about how, even though Sessions was a troll, uh, it was painful to watch the attorney general absorb public verbal abuse from the president over and over and over again. Ellie would say to himself, stand up for yourself, man, or at least for the people who work under you. Stand up for the department. Show some spine. But as we know, that did not happen. Then we get to Matthew fucking Whitaker, who was wholly unqualified, even to the point of being comical, and Trump bypassed several other qualified officials that way outranked the sweaty thumb, who I eventually nicknamed Big Dick Toilet Wine, and Trump even passed on replacements for Sessions that had been confirmed by the Senate, and because of that, many folks, including myself, called Whitaker's temporary appointment unconstitutional. But he was a Trump yes-man, so he got the job. And by the way, Big Dick Toilet Wine comes from the fact that he put a patent, he, he, he created this toilet that was extra deep for quote-unquote well-endowed men, and I said, I bet you could make a lot of prison wine in one of those. And that's how Big Dick Toilet Wine got started. And I think it was Molly Jong Fast um, who, who called him Hot Tub Crime Machine, because I think he had a, a patent or worked on it at a hot tub company. Ellie then gives an example of how out of his depth hot tub crime machine was when during a press conference, Matthew Whitaker decided it would be cool to say that the Mueller investigation was, quote, I think close to being completed, unquote. He said that right after he said he wasn't going to talk about open and ongoing investigations, uh, and his statement violated a Department of Justice practice not to comment on the status of any pending investigation. So after Sessions and Whitaker, 
Barr seemed kind of reasonable. But Ellie then talks about the big red flag besides Iran-Contra, which was Barr's audition memo. That was the 18-page memo he penned calling Mueller overly zealous and overly aggressive, and that Mueller shouldn't be permitted to subpoena or question Trump directly, and that Mueller's quote-unquote theory of obstruction of justice was quote, fatally misconceived and should be rejected. Ellie says of the memo, quote, it laid bare his intent regarding the Mueller investigation. And to be honest, based on that memo, none of us should have been surprised at how he handled the release of the Mueller report, or mishandled, I should say. And Ellie discusses in this chapter why the memo is legally wrong and is alarming for the declaration that a president has, quote, complete authority to start or stop a law enforcement proceeding, and that the president's law enforcement powers extend to all matters, including those in which he has a personal stake. That should have been a glaring red flag, and to many it was. Barr addressed this memo in his opening remarks at his confirmation because he knew it was going to be a fucking problem, saying he said he, he had written it as an academic exercise so that other lawyers would have the benefit of his views, and then said, quote, my memo was narrow, explaining my thinking on a very specific obstruction of justice theory under a single statute. And Ellie responds to this by saying, sure, it was narrow. It just happened to go narrowly to the precise issue that Mueller was then pursuing. <laughs> And then Ellie goes through some specific points Barr raised in his confirmation hearing. I'll leave those for you to enjoy, including uh, when Barr tried to parse what the words corruptly and bad really mean. He also addressed Barr's use of the word collusion, which, as we know, is an active measure uh, called reflexive control, uh, which became a, a rallying cry for the right, despite not being a term of art in federal law. The memo should have been a massive warning, like I said, but the confirmation went pretty much along party lines. 54 to 45. So that's where we are. I'm going to take one last quick break and we'll finish off this episode with a short but important chapter entitled Impartiality. Stay with us. Season two of Swing Left's How We Win is here. Subscribe everywhere you get your pods for insight, action, and your reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is How, how We Win. win. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are now on Chapter 3 of Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department by Ellie Honig, former federal prosecutor. Chapter 3 is called Impartiality, and it opens with one of Ellie's outstanding anecdotes. According to Honig, he was called by a longtime DOJ ethics guy named John McEnany, and he immediately thought, okay, what did I do wrong? And I love this. In a deadpan voice, McEnany said, surprisingly nothing. Um, <laughs> but apparently they had to pull Ellie off of one of his cases. Now, given the conflicts of interest we've been bombarded with during the Trump administration, you'd think, oh, was the defendant Ellie's brother? Or did Ellie once represent the furniture store that was part of a mafia shakedown? But no. Here was the conflict of interest. One of the potential witnesses in his case, not even a subject, just a potential witness, had been represented by Ellie's dad's law partner in a civil case about a decade earlier. That is how addressing conflicts of interest are supposed to go down. Not that you're the head of the criminal division representing Alpha Bank and is now overseeing the Mueller probe, which is investigating Alpha Bank. Hello, Brian Benchkowski. Nope, his dad's partner repped a potential witness in a civil suit over a decade ago. The core concept here being impartiality, very important part, very important concept. 
Quote, yet William Barr publicly pronounced before he took office that he had already come to the decisive conclusion about Mueller's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election, yet he remained on the case and ultimately in charge of it, unquote. Ali goes on to discuss how Bill Barr's decision not to recuse himself was unprincipled because Barr had already publicly pronounced Mueller's probe was asinine and fatally misconceived and the presidents can't obstruct justice. Seems like kind of a conflict of interest. When Barr was asked during his confirmation whether or not he would recuse from the Mueller investigation, he actually promised he would seek the advice of career ethics personnel, but reminded us that as head of the agency, he would make the final decision. So I'll consult people, but I'm not going to listen to him anyway. When Kamala Harris asked if he'd take the advice of those ethics officials, whatever they said, he said he might decline if he disagreed with it. Ellie says, quote, three weeks after his confirmation, Barr surprised exactly nobody when he decided not to recuse himself from the Mueller investigation. <laughs> There's some of that good Ellie Honig humor. Surprised exactly nobody. A spokesperson for the DOJ even told us that ethics folks advised him that he should not recuse. Yeah, ethics people in the DOJ advised Barr that he should not have to recuse himself from the Mueller investigation, which was weird because the same ethics officials advised Matthew fucking Whitaker that he should recuse for the same kinds of reasons, which, of course, Matthew Whitaker ignored. But why the change all of a sudden? Ellie says there's only two possibilities here. First, the same ethics official did a 180 and came to the exact opposite conclusion based on comparable facts. Or two, Barr shopped around for different ethics officials who would give him a different recommendation than that which Whitaker got. My guess is the latter. But as Ellie says, it didn't matter. Quote, all the cards had fallen into place. William Barr was now Attorney General of the United States, the same person who had already conclusively declared Mueller's investigation as fatally misconceived, asinine, and overly zealous, would now oversee the very same case. And that wraps up the first three chapters of Hatchet Man. Next week, I'll be going over Chapter 4, The Mueller Investigation. Should be good. Chapter 5, Take a Shot. It's a really good one. And chapter six on Ukraine. And then chapter seven called Podium Privilege. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I'm Allison Gill, and this is the Muller She Wrote Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>